Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder, including of a minor. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's Halloween night. A crescent moon hangs over the Hitchin Post, a truck stop restaurant just off I-45 in Huntsville, Texas. Inside, a waitress, who we'll call Brenda, is working the late shift. You get a lot of strangers in a place like the Hitchin Post. Brenda certainly doesn't recognize the girl sitting alone tonight. When Brenda checks on her, the girl asks for directions to the Ellis unit, the local prison not too far away. By Brenda's estimate, the girl can't be much older than her early teens, far too young to be traveling alone. But when Brenda asks where her parents are, the girl insists she's an adult. Someone in the restaurant sketches a map to the Ellis unit and gives it to the girl. She mentions she's going there to visit a friend. An odd detail. By this time of night, prison visiting hours are long over. Eventually, the girl leaves. But the strange interaction sticks with Brenda. It's not easy to forget. Because within a few hours, the girl is dead. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, We're covering the unsolved murders of two women who were killed almost exactly one year apart from each other. Both were found on the side of Texas highways where they'd been carelessly discarded. When no one came forward to claim them, investigators feared that they would remain unidentified forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Every murder investigation starts with a victim. If their identity is in question, 
Naming them is the first step toward bringing them justice. We've seen this theme in case after case, starting with our first episode on the Texas killing fields. But there's one story that may illustrate this better than any other. One story, but two cases. Today we examine two murders connected by the Texas Interstate Highway System in a litany of eerie coincidences, starting with the day their stories begin. Halloween. Around 4.30 a.m. October 31, 1979, a driver zips down Interstate 35 in central Texas. He spots something lying in a concrete ditch. It looks like a discarded mannequin. The driver loops around for a closer look. When he draws near to the strange figure off the road, he realizes it isn't a mannequin at all. It's a woman's body lying face down on the concrete. The driver rushes to a gas station to phone the police. Soon afterward, officers from the Williamson County Sheriff's Department arrive on the scene. The woman is naked aside from a pair of orange socks and a ring. Scratches and bruises cover her back. It seems she was dragged over the guardrail before being tossed into the culvert. It also looks like she'd fallen on tough times before her death. Her nails aren't trimmed. She hasn't shaved in a while, and she has scars on her legs that look like they could be from insect bites, and she shows signs of gonorrhea. There are a few other potential clues around the body. Two matchbooks lie near her, one from a Motel 6 and another from a Holiday Inn in Oklahoma. This suggests either the victim or her killer were traveling. The medical examiner thinks the victim is most likely in her mid-20s, but she could be as young as 15 or as old as 30. It's hard to say for sure. As for her cause of death, the young woman was strangled. Police can't determine an exact timeline of the murder, but they estimate she died about 12 hours before her body was found. Since her death, she's been lying unnoticed at the side of the road. Otherwise, police don't know anything about her. For the time being, they come up with a placeholder name until they can identify the woman, instead of a variation of Jane Doe, like we've seen used in other cases. They name her after the only clothing she had on, orange socks. From there, officials can't do much without more evidence, so the state buries orange socks in Georgetown, Texas, not too far from where she was found. She's put to rest under a headstone that simply reads, unidentified woman. Over the next few months, authorities commission sketches and circulate them throughout the country, hoping someone will recognize the victim and come forward. There's a lot of debate around the efficacy of this tactic. Even skilled artists can struggle to translate a dead body into a lifelike drawing, and if a sketch that ends up getting circulated isn't close enough to the victim, it can be damaging to the investigation. There's also the problem that law enforcement agencies don't track how often cases are closed thanks to these types of drawings. All in all, it's difficult to say just how useful they are. But in this case, there aren't many other options. You can't circulate photos of a corpse on national TV, so a sketch is the best authorities can do. It's a Hail Mary, and it isn't good enough. After the sketch is circulated, 
One anonymous tipster calls in to say that they saw Orn Sox hitchhiking before she was killed, but this doesn't really shed any new light on the case. Williamson PD gets no other tips of value. No one seems to recognize the victim. It's like she has no friends, no family. No one wants to claim her as their own. It's almost like she's been thrown away. The sad truth is that stories like this one are all too common. According to recent statistics, in your average year, approximately 4,400 unidentified corpses are found in the United States. While a little over three-quarters of those people are eventually named, roughly 1,000 aren't. The detectives leading Orrin Sox's case don't want to give up so soon, but the months drag by with no new leads. Soon enough, it's 1980. October rolls around again, and on Halloween, an all-too-familiar scene plays out. Just like last time, a trucker spots a body by the side of the highway, this time off Interstate 45. If you listen to our first episode on the Texas killing fields, this is the same highway that runs near those fields. By the time the driver notifies the police, it's early morning. The first detectives on the scene note that the woman is face down at the side of the road, so it seems the killer pushed her from the highway. In addition, she is completely nude other than a necklace. A deep bite wound, presumably left by the killer, is visible on her shoulder. A pair of underwear, pantyhose, and red leather high-heeled sandals are found near this woman's body. They determine she's only been dead for about six hours and that she's been sexually assaulted with a blunt object. Investigators determine the young woman was 18 at the oldest, but more likely between 14 and 16. In other words, she was just a girl when she lost her life, and she was strangled to death. The similarities to Orn Socks are glaring, from the cause of death to the condition of the body to the day of the year. The new girl even receives her own unique moniker. They call her Walker County Jane Doe. But it's important to note that at least initially, investigators don't have any reason to think the cases are connected. Walker County Jane Doe is just one of roughly two dozen women who have been killed and dumped near the Texas freeway system in 1980. At least four of those women were sexually assaulted, strangled, and left on Interstate 45. The most notable connection between the cases, the fact that the victims were found on Halloween, feels like it's probably a spooky coincidence, at least for the moment. The Walker County Sheriff's Department begins their investigation by questioning anyone who was in the area the night she died. One eyewitness says he spotted the teen at a rest stop around 6.30 p.m. on Halloween, the South End Gulf Station. She wore jeans and a yellow sweater and carried a pair of high-heeled sandals like the ones found near the body. This witness says the girl was asking for directions to a nearby prison called the Ellis Unit. Apparently, someone pointed her in the right direction because later that night, she was spotted at a nearby truck stop called the Hitchin Post. When the detectives stop by, they finally find someone who spoke to the victim. 
A waitress who works at the diner tells them that the deceased came in while she was working on Halloween night. The girl claimed to be an adult, but the waitress thought she looked closer to her early teens. Just like at the South End Gulf Station, the girl asked for directions. She also told the waitress she was from the Aransas Pass Rockport area, a stretch of coastal southwestern Texas that's hundreds of miles from where she was found. This statement doesn't offer much, but it's all the Walker County Sheriff PD have to go on. They build a team and start the investigation by heading to the Ellis unit. They review inmate files, hoping to find someone who could have known her, but no obvious connections stick out. So they show Jane Doe's photograph to every single prisoner. Nobody recognizes her. At least, nobody admits they do. The prison looks like a dead end. So the detectives turn their focus to the Aransas Pass Rockport area, the coastal region where the victim said she was from. They pull missing persons reports and go through them with a fine-tooth comb, but they don't find anyone who fits her description. Like with orange socks, the leads dry up all too quickly. Before the investigators move on to other cases, they save some of the victim's tissue for future examination just in case. They store it in formaldehyde and paraffin wax to prevent cell deterioration and help ensure the tissues will be visible underneath microscopes later on. By this point, both the Walker County Jane Doe and the Orange Sox mysteries have reached the same unsatisfying dead end. With no clues to the victim's identities, catching the killer feels impossible. For years, the women's sketches are circulated. If anyone recognizes them, they don't come forward. Until 1983, when a break comes from a most unexpected source. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the Serial Killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On June 22, 1983, a man named Henry Lee Lucas sits in a jail cell in Montague County, Texas. 
days before, he was arrested for illegal possession of a firearm. Prior to his current stint, Lucas served time for murdering his own mother and separately for the attempted kidnapping of a 15-year-old girl. He was paroled in 1975, and to hear Lucas tell it, this marked the start of a massive killing spree. It seems he and some accomplices spent the eight years between his release and his next arrest traveling the country, leaving a trail of death in their wake. And now, he's confessed to everything. Here's one piece of his statement. Quote, I think her name was Joni or Judy, I don't remember exactly. I killed her not long after that by strangling her with my hands. I drug her out of my car somewhere on IH-35 southbound toward San Antonio and dropped her into a culvert. End quote. Sound familiar? It should. He's talking about orange socks, the unidentified woman found in Central Texas on Halloween 1979. According to Lucas, he picked orange socks up in Oklahoma City where she was hitchhiking. He says that they had consensual sex once, but when she refused to repeat the act, he killed her, molested her corpse, and then dumped her body off a Texas interstate. The crime he describes fits the scene police examined almost four years ago. Investigators even drive Lucas past the culvert, and he points out the exact spot where Orange Sox's body was found. Although there isn't any physical evidence tying Lucas to Orange Sox, or any eyewitnesses who can confirm he met her, the strength of his confession is enough. In 1984, a jury finds him guilty of Orange Sox's murder and sentences him to death. To all appearances, justice has been served. But can we really say that the case is closed? Investigators still don't know Orange Sox's identity. Her family still doesn't know what happened to her. And then there's our other unidentified woman, Walker County Jane Doe. After Henry Lee Lucas is found guilty of killing Orange Sox, the Walker County detectives wonder if he could have killed Jane Doe, too. After all, the circumstances of her homicide were extremely similar, and while Lucas didn't confess to killing her, he was a free man when she died. Detectives compare the serial killer's dental records to the bite mark on Walker County Jane Doe's shoulder, and it isn't a match. Henry Lee Lucas didn't kill Walker County Jane Doe. You would think that that means we could finally be certain that her case isn't connected to Orange Sox. They must have been committed by different killers. But that's not necessarily true. Because as it turns out, Henry Lee Lucas probably didn't kill Orange Sox either. By the time he receives the death penalty... Lucas has confessed to upwards of 600 murders. Some journalists find that number unbelievable, as in they think he's lying at least about some of the murders. There are more than a few problems with his confessions. We'll start with the timeline discrepancies. A few of these homicides occurred while he was known to be at work hundreds of miles away. At least one occurred while he was in jail. In addition... Lucas has taken credit for murders in which another party has been proven guilty and some that never even happened. 
Once he's on death row, Lucas comes clean. While he is a killer, his confessions were mostly lies. He claims he was bribed to confess. In exchange for the false admissions, Lucas apparently received perks like cigarettes, better food, and even the freedom to move about prison without handcuffs. Now, it's unclear if the police were intentionally incentivizing him to lie or if they believed him. We do know Lucas's confessions generally weren't credible, but officials accepted them anyway. And they helped them close the books on dozens, maybe hundreds of open cases. When it comes to orange socks, it turns out Lucas was briefed on the murder before he gave his statement. The police even showed him crime scene photos. That's how he knew the details that made his confession so convincing. Eventually, the authorities discover unemployment records placing Lucas in Florida on October 31, 1979, meaning that he wasn't even in Texas the day that Orange Sox was murdered, so he couldn't have killed her. After all is said and done, the water is so muddied that it's difficult to say for sure what really happened. The one thing that's clear is that none of Lucas's confessions can be taken at face value. In 1998, mere days before Lucas is scheduled to be executed, Texas Governor George W. Bush commutes his sentence to life in prison. In his statement, Bush notes that he believes Lucas is, quote, unquestionably guilty of other despicable crimes. But there's too much doubt about his guilt in this murder to execute him for it. Ironically, the authorities don't officially rule him out as Orange Sox's killer. They still think it's possible that he's the culprit. They just don't have enough evidence to prove it. After everything, the Williamson County Police Department is back at square one. It's worse than that, really, because they may have lost years thinking they'd found the killer. Meanwhile, the Walker County Police Department has been diligently searching for new avenues of investigation in the death of Jane Doe. Since dental records ruled Lucas out, they've been exploring a new, exciting possibility. Genetic profiling. In 1999, they exhumed Jane Doe's body, collect samples from her bones, and run DNA tests. Unfortunately, it's yet another dead end. There are no matches. For the next decade, the Orange Sox and Walker County Jane Doe cases languish without any significant progress. All the while, drawings of both victims fly across the World Wide Web, encouraging internet surfers to call in tips. In 2003, a woman in California thinks she recognizes Orange Sox as a missing family member. Detectives follow up and are excited. The women look very similar. But when they run a DNA test, it turns out they aren't a match. Another decade and a half passes by. Then, by 2018, the Williamson County Sheriff's Department has put together a new cold case unit. They start digging through old files for projects to resurrect and quickly set their sights on orange socks. With a new influx of resources, they go over everything again, 
searching for any possible mistakes, anything that could have been missed by the original detectives. The forensic investigators re-examined fingernail clippings that were cut during Orange Sox's autopsy. They find DNA that isn't hers. It belongs to a male. It seems Orange Sox may have scratched her killer while trying to fight him off. Unfortunately, this DNA doesn't match anyone in their system. Around this time, the Sheriff's Department makes a DNA profile for Orange Sox on the genealogy website GEDmatch. We've seen this technique used previously in our episode on the Texas killing fields. The idea is to match Jane Doe's genetic information to one of her relatives and confirm their identity that way. This technique has been used to solve some high-profile cases, but it's far from foolproof. It only works if the victim's family members have already made their own profiles on the same database, and they have to opt in to allow law enforcement to access that information. In Orange Sox's case, it doesn't turn up any results. Even with all the new technology at their disposal, the cold cases unit quickly runs out of stones to overturn. In a last-ditch effort, they commission a new sketch of orange socks and circulate it on TV and online. It's the same tactic they've been trying for almost 40 years without success. No one has any reason to expect different results. They must feel like fishermen casting their lines into a pond they already know is empty. But this time, they get a bite. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. It's June of 2019. A woman who we'll call Cynthia is watching a news program when she sees something that stops her short. It's the sketch of a woman who was murdered in Central Texas in 1979, the woman known as Orange Socks. The news program is asking for anyone with information about the victim to call the sheriff's office, but for a moment at least, Cynthia can only stare because she recognizes the girl in the picture. Cynthia contacts the Williamson County Sheriff's Office to say Orange Sox was her sister. Cynthia explains that her sister left their home in Abilene, Texas in 1977 when she was 21 years old. Her relatives didn't think there was any reason to worry. For the next two years, Cynthia's sister worked odd jobs in the Fort Worth and Amarillo areas. It seems she didn't stay in very close contact with her family, 
All they knew was she seemed to be doing all right. They continued to believe that, even when she stopped contacting them altogether. Her loved ones didn't report her missing. After all, she was an adult and she left of her own free will. It's unclear how many years passed before anyone began to suspect something terrible may have happened to Cynthia's sister. For all that time, her absence was a looming uncertainty in Cynthia's life. But now, Cynthia's family describes how her sister suffered from a bacterial infection as a child. It left scars consistent with those on Orange Sox's legs, which investigators originally attributed to insect bites. Orange Sox and Cynthia's sister even have the same unusually shaped earlobes and long toes. And Cynthia's sister's social security activity stopped right around the time Orange Sox died. It's compelling, but not conclusive. So the authorities have Cynthia take a DNA test. She sends a saliva sample to a nonprofit group called the DNA Doe Project, which works with personnel at the Williamson County Sheriff's Office. The group is mainly volunteers. They compare Cynthia's genetic material with some from Orn Sox's body. The results? Inconclusive. Two more relatives share mouth swabs with DNA Doe. Again, the tests come back inconclusive. It's frustrating. Everyone feels like Cynthia's sister has to be Orange Sox. So why won't the DNA tests confirm it? They start to worry that there might be a problem with Orange Sox's sample. Maybe there just isn't enough usable DNA in the sample to make a positive ID. If that's the case, they may never know the truth. But it gives them one last idea. They run the test again and this time, DNA Doe focuses on a different kind of genetic information. Mitochondrial DNA, or mtDNA. mtDNA is less precise than regular DNA because it comes only from a person's mother rather than both parents. That means the same mtDNA would be present in all offspring from that mother. It's not unique. But despite these limitations, mtDNA analysis seems like it might be a good fit for this case. This is because mtDNA is abundant in our bodies. A small sample might have a minuscule amount of traditional DNA and thousands of times more mitochondrial DNA. So if a specimen is too tiny to be useful in a typical genetic test, it might still have enough mtDNA for laboratory purposes. We don't know the exact reasons why Orange Sox's tests aren't working, but if the issue is a lack of usable material, an mtDNA examination might be the investigator's best option. Their instincts are right. This time, when the results come back, they finally get their answer. In the summer of 2019, the Williamson County Sheriff calls a press conference to announce a breakthrough in the Orange Sox case. Using mitochondrial DNA tests, the DNA Doe Project has confirmed that Orange Sox is Cynthia's long-lost sister. Her name is Deborah Jackson. It's taken 40 years to learn this. 
not to catch her killer, but to identify her body and finally determine what happened to her. While Cynthia now has to mourn her sibling, at least she has answers. So does the rest of the world. The Williamson County Sheriff's Department personnel who helped name Deborah are largely volunteers. They devoted thousands of hours to getting justice for her. And that job still isn't done, not by a long shot. Deborah's identity is just one piece of a puzzle the detectives are still trying to make sense of. For instance, there's still no confirmed connection between Deborah Jackson and Walker County Jane Doe, even though their crime scenes and the states of their bodies were so similar. At this point, Walker County Jane Doe's investigation has also been reopened. By 2020, her case falls under the purview of Detective Tom Bean, who oversees many unidentified Doe crimes. Through the use of DNA science, he's helped numerous long-dead victims reclaim their names and their stories. He comes up with a plan to finally identify Walker County Jane Doe the same way. There are problems with this plan, though. Jane Doe's body is severely decomposed, and the lab says they can't collect enough usable DNA from her samples. At this point, so much time has passed, it's impractical to exhume her again. But Bean won't give up. He connects with Othram, a company with highly specialized equipment that can get readings from the smallest of samples. But even they can't get a viable specimen from Walker County Jane Doe's bones. So they look for other options, including some cells that were collected nearly 30 years ago during the initial autopsy. Remember, back in 1980, when Walker County Jane Doe was found dead, police had the foresight to preserve some of her tissue in formaldehyde and paraffin wax for later study. Keep in mind, this was seven years before the first human genome was mapped. The investigators weren't thinking in terms of genetic profiles or DNA matching. Their preservation methods made the specimen almost useless for genetic studies. Even with those limitations, Othram employees think they might find something. They have to collect Walker County Jane Doe specimens multiple times before they're able to get a large enough sample, but they do get one. When they run the test, they managed to find a match to six people who've shared their genetic information on public databases, and they all have someone in common. A relative who disappeared right before Walker County Jane Doe's death. The missing girl fits Walker County Jane Doe's profile, so detectives locate her brother, who agrees to provide a DNA sample. They test his genetics against the victims, and... They learn that Walker County Jane Doe was a 14-year-old girl named Sherry Ann Jarvis. Sherry grew up in a small Minnesota town called Stillwater, meaning she was lying when she told the waitress she was from the Aransas Pass Rockport area. It's also possible that the waitress misremembered what she'd said. She ran away roughly seven months before her death, and her family isn't certain how she ended up at the Hitchin Post, nor is it clear why she wanted to get to the Ellis unit. Although there are still gaps that might never be filled now, 
Sherry Jarvis and Deborah Jackson have their stories back. Their families know their fates. It's far from a completely satisfying conclusion. Their killers have yet to be identified after all and could still be at large. But this doesn't have to be the end. Like I've said before, giving a victim their identity back is the first step toward giving them justice, not the last. It's just that sometimes that one step can take decades. Ultimately, there was never very strong evidence that Deborah Jackson and Sherry Jarvis were killed by the same person. Most likely, their cases were only connected by some coincidental similarities, like the fact that they were both killed along the side of Texas highways on Halloween, one year apart from one another. Now, they share another thing in common. They don't need placeholder names anymore. If you know anything about the murder of Deborah Jackson, formerly known as Orange Sox, please report it to the Williamson County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit at 512-943-5204. Likewise, if you know anything about the murder of Sherry Ann Jarvis, formerly known as Walker County Jane Doe, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 936 435 24 Zero, zero. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another Cold Case. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Angela Jorgensen, Edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher. Fact-checked by Claire Cronin. Researched by Mickey Taylor. With sound design by Russell Nash. And produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>